Now at this time, I'd like to invite the kids to head back to Children's Church, ages 3 to kindergarten, 3 to 5. Feel free to head back and join Children's Church. I think I see Miss Jen back there, so you'll have a wonderful time with her. And kids, feel free to head back and join them. The rest of us may turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 6 through 12 this morning as we continue to work through this Old Testament prophetic book. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew in the New Testament, you've gone too far, and go backwards from there to Malachi. As you turn there, I'll just make a brief, uh, just encouragement to you. Thank you for being a praying and faithful church. It was a hard weekend for a couple families in our church. I'm encouraged by them, their faithfulness and trust in the Lord. I'm encouraged by you all as a church to walk with them and beside them and to love. Um, There's no greater people to be a part of in the local church of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly in times like these. I'm thankful for this family. So thank you for caring well. And keep them in your prayer. Malachi 3, uh, verses 6 through 12. I'm going to have you if, you, if you are able and willing, stand with me. While I read this, I'm reading from the ESV. Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside, for my statutes have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Our Father and God, it is because of your faithfulness and your graciousness that we stand here this morning. And it is by your word that we are encouraged. Our only hope is that you are a God who is there and who speaks to us. So we pray that you would speak to us this morning, animate our hearts, cause us to love and adore and worship your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What are some indicators of the state of our economy? If you're trying to assess the state of our economy, of our finances as a nation, what are some key indicators? According to one article I found, you can find actually some strange indicators of how our economy is going. According to one article, these are all indicators that our nation's economy is in the middle of a downturn. 
First indicator that I noticed was men's underwear sales. <laughs> Apparently, Alan Greenspan himself is a believer in this sign, that when money is tight, people tend to make sacrifices. And for men, that means no new underwear, that <laughs> underwear sales go down in the middle of an economic downturn. On the other hand, perfume sales go up, perfume and makeup. Not good perfume and makeup, but like, Drugstore perfume, and I realize as I say that I might be insulting some of you, but like drugstore perfume and makeup sales tend to go up as a cheap splurge. There's others, I won't get into them, but one of the ones I thought was interesting was dog napping. Kidnapping dogs for sale increases in economic downturn. So these are some signs of economic recession that you can look out for yourself. What about spiritual recession? What what are the indicators of spiritual recession? Uh, Lights flashing on the dashboard that might tell you we're in spiritual recession. As it turns out, one of the great indicators of spiritual recession is what we do with our finances. That was true for Israel. It was made clear in the section in Malachi that their or how they used their finances and their wealth was a key indicator of spiritual recession for them. Their lack of worship to God was evidenced by their refusal to bring the tithes and offerings that God demanded. This passage, like all the passages of Malachi, all the sections teaches us about worship. That's really the theme. What does a full life of worship look like? And here in Malachi, what we find is that our worship of God and how we use our finances are very much related. I'll sum it up this way. A fruitful life with God demands a faithful use of wealth. That's a tidy way of summarizing it all. A fruitful life with God demands a faithful use of wealth. That if you're going to have a fruitful life with God that is blessed and if you're going to live with him, then that demands by necessity that it will be reflected in the way you use your finances, your wealth, that If you have internalized the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you know God and know him, then it will be evidence, it will be seen in your checkbook or your bank account. It will show up there. That's the truth of this passage, and it's true for us today. A fruitful life with God demands a faithful use of wealth. And we'll see that in examining uh, three mandates or calls that God gives to his people, three commands that he issues forth through this section. That will guide us through. The first command can be seen in verses 6 through 7. Here God calls the people to return in devotion to God. That's the first call in verses 6 through 7. It's a summary call. It's a call to return. It's a call to repent. Return in devotion to God in obedience and love. This is important. As we go through this text, to start here and notice that God starts with the heart. That's what he's after. Verse 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In these two verses, there is bad news and good news. The bad news and the good news is the people and God have not changed. The bad news, the people have not changed. 
Have you had this moment as you've grown older and you take a look in the mirror and you realize I've become my parents? If you're younger and unmarried and you're considering a spouse, take a look at their parents. You're getting at least some of that. All right. There's going to be some mixture of that that you're signing up for. And that might be a good or a bad thing, but at some moment you'll realize I'm stuck with what I've got here. That was true for the Israelites. They had all sorts of Jacob in them. They had uh, Jacob passed down to them. They were sinful and broken and disobedient and unruly, just like their father Jacob. There's this generational sickness in them that is passed down that they have not escaped. The problem is in their blood. They're just like their father. And that would be hopeless. There's no getting out of that. That's what they've inherited. It would be hopeless if it were not also true that God has not changed. There's the hope. If it weren't for the fact that God has not changed, you would be consumed. But God does not change. And what this means is that God is faithful to his promises. There's a word that theologians use for this, a fancy word called immutability. The immutability of God. What it means is God doesn't change in his essential characteristics of who he is. He cannot get better or worse or else he would not be perfect. He does not change. He is always good, always holy, always just, always righteous, always who God is. And that does not change. So he is immutable in his characteristics and who he is, and he is immutable in his promises and the promises that he has made, his faithfulness to his covenant. God doesn't wake up one morning and decide, I no longer love my spouse. God is faithful to the promises and the covenant he has made. He does not turn back on the people that he loves. He is faithful and committed always. And that is the good news for Israel, because God made a promise to them. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is the only reason they aren't consumed. Not because of their goodness, but because of God's. And out of that goodness, he calls them and says, return to me. It's an invitation. Come back. Enjoy my blessing. Come back to your obedience. Come back to, your, uh, to obeying the laws of God. Now, when I say laws of God, how does that hit you? When we say laws, commands, do we immediately kind of go, oh, almost a negative, like, laws. I think that's kind of a symptom of our fallenness that, that comes out. Because the laws of God were perfect and good and brought life and blessing. They were good. And when God is calling them to return to obedience, what he's calling them to is return to the goodness of my teaching. Return to the blessing. Return to the relationship with me. It'll be better for you. God is inviting them, summoning them to goodness. There's an important chapter in your Old Testament. I've mentioned it before, Deuteronomy 28. And there God lays out for Israel curses and blessings. If you disobey, if you run from me, if you turn from me, he's talking to Israel here and talking about their life in the land of Israel, in the promised land. If you run away from me, it'll go bad for you. There will be curses. It will not go well. But Israel, my people, in the land that you are, if you are obedient and if you keep up your end of the covenant, it will go well for you. You will be blessed. 
So God lays out before them a choice. Curses or blessings. Disobedience or obedience is up to you. And here God calls his people return to the place of blessing once again. And they ask, how can we return? Now, that is not a humble question of, God, please show us the way and we'll do it. That how can we return is them saying, how can we return if we never went from you? They are disagreeing with God's assessment of them, saying, we haven't turned. It's an ignorance. It's like sometimes maybe you ask your kids to do the dishes, and they say, dishes? Dish? I don't know what these, those even are. What a, a dishwasher? Husbands can do this with wives. Sometimes I do this with Maggie. Uh, laundry, a dark, light, hot, I mean, this is so complicated. I, a simple man like me, I don't even know what this is. How do I do this? It's like claiming ignorance. Laundry? Return to God? What are you talking about, God? We never left. And God is saying, I have proof you've gone from me. I have proof your hearts have been far. And he's going to talk about their tithes and offerings. And I find that fascinating. Might not be where we'd first expect God to go. How have we strayed from you? Show us the proof. And God says, let's go to your bank accounts. Why? Because how you spend your money is the quickest, most insightful way to show where your heart is at. There's the old movie, All the President's Men, which is about the Nixon-Watergate scandal. In the, movie, in the movie, the line is repeated, follow the money. If you want to see where the corruption was, if you want to see where the deals happened and where there was illegal activity and the Watergate scandal and all that, follow the money. The money will tell the truth. The money will reveal what has gone on. And the same is true of our spiritual lives. If you want to know how your worship is going, how your faithfulness is going, if you want to know where your heart is at and where you have invested your, your thoughts and your time and your energy, follow the money. Where is your financial investment? Jesus himself teaches this. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They go together. Wherever your emotional and spiritual investment is, that is where your money will be. And wherever your money goes, that's where you're going to get invested. That is why all the sports leagues want betting to go on. Why? Because they want you financially invested in the game. And when you have money on it, you pay a little bit more attention, don't you? Where your money goes, there your heart, your attention goes. So God's going to go right to their checkbooks, right towards their bank accounts, because that will be the clearest evidence that they have strayed far from him. Well, how have they strayed? And God answers that in verses 8 and 9. So the first command, and I want to make this clear, the overall desire of God here, the command of God is to return to me in devotion. Now here's the evidence that they have turned from him. In verses 8 and 9, they have robbed him. So the implied command in verses 8 through 9 is do not withhold from God. First, return in devotion to God, and do not withhold from God. Do not withhold from him. Do not withhold what is properly due to him. Verse 8 and 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. People ask, how can we return? God says, let's talk about money. You have plundered God. That's what the word is there for rob. You've plundered. It implies taking money by force. Say, so how can this happen? Can people mount up an army and storm heaven and plunder God? How can that happen? How do you steal from God anyways? Doesn't he have everything? Isn't he the one who owns it all as sovereign over the whole universe? Scripture says he's the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which is a way of saying God owns everything. Everything you have is on loan to you from God. He is the one who ultimately possesses it all. Any bit of wealth we have on this earth is on loan. So how can it be that we rob God? And he answers, you have robbed me in your tithes and offerings. They had not been giving their tithes and their offerings. Now, let's have a talk about tithes and offerings. What are those? A tithe, as you may know, is a tenth part. Ten percent. It's a word for giving. It's from the Old Testament. And tithe is a tenth part. And in Israel, the people were commanded to give a tenth part of the produce of their land. A tenth of what they produced was to go to the Lord. And it was for several purposes. The Old Testament lays out that the tithe was for supporting the livelihood of the Levites and the priests. The tithe was for offerings to the poor in the community. And the tithe was for the festivals of worship that happened in the life of Israel. The tithe would support all those and fund all those. Depending on which scholar you ask, it may be actually these were three separate tithes. So some believe that in the Old Testament, those were not actually one tithe, but three separate tithes. So if we heard one scholar say the tithe for the priests was yearly, the tithe for the festivals was yearly, and the tithe for the poor was every third year. So you total that together, that's 23 and a third percent is what the tithe was. And then they're obligated to contribute various taxes and give free will offerings and offerings of worship, so the tithe may have been well over 20%. It's actually incredibly difficult to determine how much the Israelites were supposed to give. And different scholars put it together differently. It was probably not 10%. Scholar Tom Schreiner says, though we might assume Old Testament Israel gave a total of 10%, it's actually difficult to discern how much was given. Some think the Israelites gave 14 tithes over seven years. Others believe they gave 12 Regardless, when we add the required tithes together, the amount certainly exceeded 10%. In fact, the number was probably somewhere around 20% per year. Now, someone will ask me, as Christians, in the New Covenant, are we obligated to tithe? And then I might respond, well, a good Jew, an Israelite, We'll get well, give well over 20% of their income. And then you'd say, you know, I feel like there's a harsh distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And surely are some differences. And by your greediness, what you do is you back into good theology. Because we're not Israel. We don't have commands to circumcise, right? I don't think we've celebrated the festival of booths recently. We are not, as New Covenant believers, under the Old Covenant which commanded the tithe and how it worked out. So, does that mean we don't have to give anything at all? 
No. We, of course, are called to give and be generous with our money. While we are not under the law of Moses, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant gives us a really good guide as to the priorities of God and how we are to live as his people. So consider that the tithes, what were they for? Supporting the priests and the Levites? Supporting your clergy, yes and amen. That's what tithes are for. Been waiting all year to get to know. Uh, offerings for the poor. Supporting the worshiping community. Those are the kind of the priorities of the tithes. I think that's a good guide. And the New Testament actually explicitly calls us to give towards gospel ministers, to the worshiping community, and for those in need. You say, well, how often and how much? I say, I don't know. Scripture never says we're supposed to give every Sunday. There's a passion in 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul's taking collection from the Corinthians to give to the church in Jerusalem because they were in need there. And he advises them to set aside some every week for that special offering that was going to uh, the Christian believers in Jerusalem. But that, I don't think, is a mandate for how we all must give. Setting aside from every week made sense because they were paid daily for their labor. So setting aside a little bit at the end of the week kind of made sense as they received their daily distribution. It just kind of made sense as a pattern. It's not a mandate for how often we are supposed to give. So you may give once a month, you may give once a year. Some of you do that. It kind of throws our budget spreadsheets off, but it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the, pro- the basic principle of giving is give regularly, give generously, and give proportionally to what you receive, all to the glory of God. That, that's how Ian, the good one scholar, sums up. He says, the New Testament teaches about giving, that we as Christians should give regularly, give proportionally to our income, give willingly and generously, not by force. As 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Long and short of it is, don't rob God with your giving. What happened with the Israelites? They robbed God. They withheld their tithes and offerings. And what happened to them? They were under a curse because of it. Their land was cursed. They weren't producing. They thought they could not afford to give. But they failed to realize they, they were withholding from the one who ordained the seasons and the rains of the economy. And we'll get to that later. But in reality, they could not afford not to give because they were under a curse for not giving, and there were consequences for that. Now, we are not under the old covenant, like I said, so I don't think we can say you'll be under a curse if you don't give. I will say, if you are greedy, and if you have a love of money, and if you withhold giving, and if you don't give generously as a Christian, as an outflow of your love for the Lord, if that is not a part of what you do, you will feel the effect of it, and you will experience spiritual sickness, and there will be a consequence. So while I cannot forcefully say you will experience a curse, I can say you'll feel it, and you'll notice it. And if you wonder why is there uh, just a spiritual depression about me? One of the places I would examine if I were a good uh, practitioner of the soul and, di- and trying to diagnose your soul, one of the questions I might ask you if you're experiencing some type of spiritual depression, the Lord isn't with me, I don't hear his voice, I don't know what's going on, one of the questions I would ask is, where are you giving? Where's generosity in your life? How is that showing up? Because if it is not there, and if you're living a life of greed and selfishness, then you will feel the effects spiritually. 
All of God's people are called to live and give generously. The Bible never criticizes people for having money. Having wealth is not the issue. In fact, very often, having wealth is a, an expected result of hard work. And we study the Proverbs, you'll see that those who work hard tend to have more wealth. That, that's under normal circumstances, generally speaking, very often the way it goes. It is not a sin to have money. It is a sin to love that money. And one of the evidences of an undue love of money and greed is the unwillingness to give it away. To close your fists around all that you have and say, nobody can touch this, I'm keeping this for myself. And if that is your heart, it's a heart far from God. I think all people and all of God's people are called to give. And I would say it does not matter how much money you have because that disease of greed is an equal opportunity afflictor. That, that bad soil of greed and love of money, that can grow no matter what your bank account says. No matter how wealthy or how poor you are, that love of money can spring up. So uh, if you're wealthy, give regularly, give generously, give sacrificially. If you're poor, give regularly, Give generously, give sacrificially. I've heard some people say, well, what about really poor people and college students? They can give of their time and money. And I would say they certainly should, but I also think it's a dumb idea to not give your finances. So, well, what if I don't have anything? I would ask, do you eat? The coffee you had, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you didn't pay for that by washing the dishes in the back. And if that's the case, then you have some sort of finances. And if you have some sort of finances, give some of that. Don't train yourself and train your heart to be greedy when you're poor. It won't change magically when you're rich. Greed and selfishness are not conditions of your bank account. They're conditions of your heart. And the more wealth you have, the more responsibility you have, and the more important the bills get. If you have little, give a little. If you have a lot, give a lot. But don't use the condition that you find yourself in as an excuse to be disobedient to the Lord and his call to generosity. I do not think it's wise to train yourself not to be generous. And I think Jesus backs me up in this. Luke 16.10. I think I'd rather back up Jesus. Luke 16.10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. That's about more than finances, but I don't think it's about less. Do not withhold from God. We turn in devotion to God. And then, verses 10 through 12, God calls us, test the goodness of God. Test the goodness of God. God calls the Israelites to an experiment. Return to me. Be faithful in giving and watch what happens. Test the goodness of God. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. 
So here's the command. Bring the full tithe in. Restore your worship. Watch what I'll do. Run an experiment. Test me. Now, this is a tricky verse, isn't it? Because some of you know what else God says about testing. There's another verse. Deuteronomy 6.16 in the law says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here he says, test me. So did God forget what he said? Or it might be he's talking about two different kinds of testing. So in Deuteronomy, God tells those people, don't test me. And what he's saying there to them is do not test me from a standpoint of arrogance or unbelief, putting me on trial and trying to prove that I'll be, do what you want. The people are putting God to the test, seeing if, if they would do what they wanted God to do for them. They were making demands of God, essentially putting him on trial, demanding he prove himself. That's one kind of testing, putting God on trial. This is a different kind of testing. This is asking God to demonstrate his faithfulness. Have you ever been in a toy aisle? I haven't been recently because I'm a full-grown man, and I would never go down the toy aisle at Target or Walmart regularly. Um, but if you've ever been down the toy aisle, some toys have a little cutout and a button and it says, try me, on the package, and you can push the button and see what it does. And we'll spit out one of the canned lines in there. But it's a try me button. That's what God is saying here, try me. Push the button, see what happens. It's an invitation. Come on, you'll enjoy it. And he's being serious. Test me. Watch, I'll show you my faithfulness. So this is the basic difference between two kinds of testing. One is demanding God prove himself to you, and the other is asking God to show himself to you. One is done in arrogance and disbelief. One is done at the request of God and his invitation to see how good he is. God invites us to test him and to see if he'll be good, and he will be. How will God show his goodness? Well, there were curses for disobedience. Here are the blessings of obedience. I will open up the heavens for you. And I think it's very literally talking about rain coming down. I will rain on your land. Now, we've had rain recently. It's certainly not happening today. But we've had cycles of rain and heat. And we've commented on those, I because it's just been a strange few weeks of rain and heat. But I didn't hear anybody, and I didn't say it myself. When the rain came down, oh, thank the Lord, I'm going to eat. Our life is not so dependent upon the rain that when it rains, we say, I'll survive. But in Israel, they were dependent upon the rain. If the rain didn't come. So God is promising literally to send life. Not only would God send the rain, he would eliminate pests that were causing crops to fail. I think that's probably a reference to locusts. I will keep the locusts away. It could be other kind of pests, fire, other nations invading, but whatever it is, God will make sure that the crops grow. And then lastly, third blessing, the nations will call you blessed. You will be a land of delight. If the Israelites would only turn to God and show that they had turned to God with their bringing the tithes and offerings back in, God promises, you will be a paradise. Isn't that incredible? You will be a land the nations call blessed. You'll be the promised land like you intended, like I intended for it to be. If you will open your hearts in generosity, bring the tithes and offerings, you'll be a land of delight. That is how you change a culture. It'll be transformative. You'll change that culture from greediness and selfishness to faithfulness 
and sacrifice. And when you make that change, when you go from stinginess and greediness and withholding finances, and you make the change to giving and offering and sacrificing and worshiping the Lord, what will happen? You will go from greediness and selfishness and self-serving to love and generosity. And that is cultural transformation. And that's what God's talking about here. The whole land will be transformed. You will produce a loving, welcoming, gracious culture. You will be blessed. How can God promise that? Because he is the Lord of hosts. You might notice in the text, if you look at it, read it, how often God calls himself the Lord of hosts in Malachi and in this passage. It's one of those things that's almost hidden in plain sight, like the arrow in the FedEx logo. Some of you may not have known that's there. Look at it. Or the 31 and the Baskin Robbins for 31 flavors and the logo. It's hidden in plain sight. It's right there, but you just tend to pass over it. That's how it is with this little phrase, the Lord of hosts. It's all throughout Malachi and here. Why? Why is this God's favorite title for himself in this book? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God over heavenly armies. That's what that means. He's the one who commands the armies of heaven. And it's a way of emphasizing that he is in control of everything. What that means is that he is in control of the produce of your crops. He is in control of the stock market. Things that we look at and we think, well, that's just, nobody can figure that out. That's up to so many forces we can't understand, that is just by the whim of nature and chaos. No, it is under God's sovereign hand. God is the one who determines the value of the dollar. And he can put his thumb on the scales however he chooses and whenever he chooses. And God is saying, I am the Lord of hosts. I control how much you have. That is my job as a sovereign God who is provident over all things. So test him. See if he's good. See if he will be generous and gracious with his people. Note, he doesn't need your money. Do you see why he's doing this? God is not saying, you know, I'm really low on my retirement fund. And I could really use it if my people would just kind of kick it up a little bit. God owns it all. It's all his. He is not commanding this for his own good. He's commanding it for ours. It's for us. He's inviting us to come take part in all that he's doing in the world and all that he's doing to redeem the world and save you. Say, come and join me. Get involved. Worship me. Not for my sake, but yours. It'll be good for you. Now, is this saying that if you give, then you'll be rich? Is this prosperity gospel type stuff? Oh, if you're generous, don't worry. God will take care of you. You know what I mean? He's going to give you all the wealth you ever dreamed. Not what this is saying. Remember the context? This is Old Covenant Israel. He's talking about curses and blessings primarily. And what is the blessing he's promised? The blessing he's promised is I'll give you rain, I'll provide for your needs. God is not promising, I will give you all of your greedy desires. God is promising, I'll give you what you need and I'll take care of you, and I'll bless you. Jesus says the same thing, Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll give everything you need. 
I want to ask you Christians, those of you who've been giving, we have a generous church. I'm not preaching the sermon because, oh boy, we really need money. I'm preaching the sermon because I chose Malachi and it popped up in Malachi. We have a generous church, gives well, gives faithfully. So for those of you who give well and give faithfully, I'll ask you, have you ever been able to outgive God? Have you ever been able to outgive the church? Try getting sick or having a baby here. We have to like tell Kathy, cut it off. We cannot have any more meals. Like we can't take any more. In all my life, I have found not just this church, but another church as well. I have not been able to outgive God. I have not been able to outgive the church. Because God promises He'll provide for His people, and then points to the ultimate provision. This land of delight. What is God promising them? The promised land that someday, when you're fully worshiping, you'll be fully taken care of. And this is pointing straight towards a new creation. A perfect paradise. An eternal life with God. And if that's what God promises, then why would you withhold anything of the stuff here on earth? A fruitful life with God, which is where we're headed, and hopefully where we are now. A fruitful life with God demands a faithful use of wealth. God calls us return in devotion. Do not withhold from him. Test his goodness. I want to close with two points. If you'll allow me just a couple more minutes. Two points I want to run by you. One of application, one of motivation. Just by application. Where should you give? Where do you think you should be generous in your giving? Let me give you some ideas. As far as where you should give regularly, generously, I will say you should give regularly and generously to CBC. Do I say that because we need the money? No. If we don't have enough money, we'll figure it out. I say you should give regularly and generously to CBC because this should be where your heart is. And if you're not giving regularly and generously to CBC, I should say you should go elsewhere where your heart will be. If your heart can't be here, and you can't invest here, find somewhere you're invested and give there. But it should be somewhere. And if you can't find it within you to give regularly and generously to your home church, there's a disconnect. Either you have to start giving and investing and put your heart here, or find somewhere where your heart will be. So I would say CBC. Now, as an extension of that, I would say ask the missions team where you might give. They would have all sorts of wonderful ideas for you. We're doing advice today as a monthly or August baby bottle campaign. We have partners in ministry that we believe in that we think you ought to give generously to if you have the opportunity. I see Jack out in here who represents Relentless Prison Ministry. Relentless Prison Ministry goes into maximum security prisons like in Lansing and goes and in ministers the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are incarcerated, to people who are easily forgotten, and some people who really, really love the Lord Jesus Christ and the many who need him. It's a wonderful ministry to give to. We have missions partners. We're planning 
at some point to send Josh and MJ Lewis overseas to a place that desperately needs the gospel. I would encourage you to consider partnering with them. Help support them as they take the gospel out to people that need it. I say all this not because these things are poor needing money. I say that because they're opportunities for you to be rewarded in giving and generosity. Last final point. One of motivation. Ultimately, why? Why do we give generously? Why do we give regularly? Why do we give sacrificially, proportionally to what we have? Why? There is ultimately only one real reason we give of what we have. It is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus Christ gave himself for us. He gave everything for the blessing, for the life of his people, and died for our sins that we might live with him in paradise forever. And God gave his only son for you that you might live. That ultimately is the reason why we give graciously of our time, of our energy, of our gifts, and our finances. Because we cannot be stingy with a dollar when Jesus gave his life. A heart that is greedy and stingy is a heart that has not been trained by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who gave everything. The only response that makes sense in regards to our finances is wisdom and generosity because Jesus gave everything for us. Would you pray with me? Father, this is all about our hearts and whether they are going to be trained by your gospel, your gospel of generosity. You gave your son for us. He gave his life for us. And if that is true, and we know it is, then let us not be stingy or greedy with what we have, but to give generously, especially for those who need it. Point us in the right direction. Show us how to give well. And Lord, I personally thank you for the many generous saints that you have produced among us. The Lord, teach us and train us. Let us grow in this area. Let us not withhold money, which is worth nothing in comparison to the glory of your Son and the life that we will know with him forever. We thank you for your grace, your kindness, your generosity to us. And we praise the name of your Son. Amen.